Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now there are two mantras that are widely being used in today's literature and media. They're all over the place. I use them myself. One of them is Einstein's famous quote where uh, he said something like, you can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created it. And that is being used virtually in every book written that, I, that I've seen lately. I, and, I, of course, I use it myself, and I think it's, it's so popular because it is so applicable. The other one that's even more famous is when corporate leaders and others encourage us to think outside of the box. So one of these sayings comes from the world's most famous scientist who, in approaching the problem of explaining the world, says that we have to go beyond our current mindset that led us into the conundrums in the first place. In other words, we have to do some unlearning and change our mindset. The other one, the outside the box one, is exactly the same. You cannot solve a problem within the box, within the problem. You have to go outside the box and do some unlearning. Uh, unfortunately, these, these sayings, which are popular, are easy to articulate but hard to accomplish because it means we have to let go of assumptions, change our points of view, become perhaps unpopular, and perhaps the hardest of them all, we have to admit that we've been wrong. Uh, Ingrid Martin, my guest today, has written a fascinating and creative book on undoing most of what we've learned about improving performance in the corporate setting, which I think also translates into the world at large. She is currently the CEO of Your Leader's Edge Coaching, Consulting and Training, a firm specializing in transforming resistance to change. She focuses on changing the organizational culture of small businesses and, pro and for social profit organizations. Her new book is entitled The Ungame, For Play Business as Unusual. So, uh, Ingrid, welcome to the show. Uh, and again, this is... This is really uh, a unique way of approaching this this topic of unlearning things, and you titled your book "The Ungame." Where did you get this idea of the ungame? Well, Phil, you alluded to it in your remarks that uh, in Einstein's quote and this business about thinking outside the box that uh, there is something to unlearn. And so the whole premise of the ungame is that we have more to unlearn than we have to learn. And that's in a particular domain, because we also always have to ask, in what domain? 
In what domain uh, do I have something to learn? Well, for example, in the uh, or unlearn. Uh, in the technical domain, if we're uh, looking to uh, learn computer programming, well, uh, that is a lot to learn, not unlearn. But in terms of human behavior and how we go about designing our life or letting life happen to us, as in many cases, uh, there is much to unlearn if we want to become the designers or creators of our life. And so that's the un-game, yeah. unlearning that which we take for granted and which we don't question. Yeah, well, I, that that's something that really resonates with me uh, because so many of us don't question many of the assumptions that we're brought up with, whether those assumptions are scientific, religious, or corporate. Uh, and I like the way that you sort of try to clean the slate a little bit, try to sort of sweep the decks and and start afresh. What What is it about the conventional wisdom, in the corporate setting at least, that needs to be unlearned? What what is what are those those roadblocks those ingrained uh, lessons uh, that you think we need to undo? Well, uh, for example, here's a big one. Uh, most of us have been raised with this, and again, it's unquestioned, so we're blind to it, which makes it so difficult to uh, go ahead and challenge. If we don't see it, how can we challenge it, right? Right. And the big uh, deal is that. We've been raised in a command and control environment. This is true for parenting uh, as well. And that, although that has been declared dead in the corporate world, command and control, it's, uh, it hasn't been buried yet in a lot of places, Phil. Uh, so uh, what, uh, we need to unlearn that because it's not uh, working to bring out the best in people. And we're only going to get extraordinary results when people are uh, fully engaged and bring out the best in, in themselves. So command and control has been known not to work. Uh, there's lots of evidence for that. And yet, uh, we oftentimes are blind to it. And uh, so there is that to unlearn and then uh, to practice the antidote. And the antidote uh, might be uh, characterized as uh, uh, a catalyst culture. You know, you uh, and catalyst management and catalyst leadership, and that is a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I think uh, comes across here is that there's certain sort of key principles from your book, the Ungame, uh, foreplay to business as usual. As That's, unusual. Yeah, I'm as sorry. Unusual. I'm sorry. Foreplay to business <laughs> as unusual. My 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 eyesight isn't what it used to be <laughs> from from the sheet <laughs> I'm looking at. So, um, but one of the, but it, it it reminded me of something when I was younger. I was working in, in a corporation and and I got a new boss. Um, and in the in the legal world where I was in the legal department. Uh, it's a little different uh, in terms of the command and control, but in, in a corporate setting, it's it's not that much different than typical management um, hierarchies. And I remember the new um, general counsel said something to me along the lines of, um, I want to make sure you do things the way I would do it. In other words, if there was a legal problem, he, he told me directly, I want to I see that 
you do it the way I would do it. And I was sitting there thinking, now, how is that possible? How is it possible that I'm going to do it the way you would do it? And, and that, to me, uh, to, to me, is an example of, of command and control, right? Because that's sort of like telling me that I'm supposed to do the same steps. Exactly. You know? And I think uh, you hit on something really important. And, and um, it's a big demotivator uh, because uh, if I'm going to do it the way uh, my boss does it, then I'm only going to be, at best, a second best boss, right? Yeah, yes, because, yeah. Uh, I can't do it as well as he or she. And uh, I, uh, however, if if the boss says this is what needs to be done, in other words, this is the outcome that we're looking for, that's different. Uh, and I don't mind, uh, nor should anyone who's employed by someone else, uh, be told what to do. But by golly, do not tell me how to do it, uh, because I am going to do it uh, my way, and it'll be the best that I can be. And as long as I keep the outcome in mind, then uh, I'll get there. And if I need help, then I'll ask and so forth. But the, the, the first is just micromanaging, and it's completely demotivating. And it also intimidates people because they're thinking more about the mechanics of how to get the job done. And you know what it's like when you're first learning, let's say, how to ride a bike. You're focusing on the mechanics. You're not in the zone the way you are after you really, really know how to do it. Well, you know how to do it your best way. You know, you're already in the zone because you're practiced in that. So it is really a very, very um, uh, poor choice on management's part to uh, to uh, ask for that. So your general counsel uh, needed a little bit of help. <laughs> yeah, well, it's encouraging getting getting vindication twenty five years later. By the way, so I, I feel I feel really good that um, it's finally it's finally um, been proven that I that I had a point there. But the you know there's so there's so much here that uh, I think uh, people can relate to. Because the command and control, the micromanagement, the tell the person how it should be done instead of inspiring um, performance to reach an outcome, uh, is is a demotivator. And those who have those who have um, been put in this position, which I probably would think is is about one hundred percent of all people working, uh, know the feeling. And so it it is really refreshing that you're sort of taking this approach that this kind of stuff has to be uh, undone. Now, with regard to um, the the assumptions that go into the typical training, what are some other assumptions? What are what are some of these these uh, con- these ways of conventional thinking that you that you believe need to be undone or unlearned. What are what are some of the other barriers here? Uh, well, if we're talking about training, typical training, uh, here's something that uh, so many uh, corporations are blind to. They are assuming that every training is like uh technical training <clears throat> in other words in technical training uh there are steps a b c and if you complete a then you go to b then you go to c and it's a nice sequential uh, routine however 
there is a, a term that they don't know necessarily, which is different from technical training, and that's called adaptive training. And adaptive training focuses on behavior and to change behavior. And uh, they assume, even if they know the difference between technical training and adaptive training, which they don't, because they'll tell you, here is how you handle a conflict situation. Uh, A, acknowledge the conflict. B, do this. C, do that. Well, those of us who have ever been in a conflict, no, it doesn't go that way so cleanly, you know. Yeah. And 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 so it's a dynamic thing, and uh, interactive thing, and it can be predicted and so forth. So uh, that assumption alone is one that uh, defeats most training uh, programs. Um, and and uh, there are probably a lot of um, other uh, assumptions about training program, but perhaps we're not only talking about training. Are uh, you talking about some other uh, assumptions that uh, are in uh, corporations that well, need to be undone? Right, right. I mean, for example, in your book, you talk about um, you know you have you have your characters, and by the way, um, your book. And, and let me let me let me take a, 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 a parenthetical here. Your book is written in a narrative as a as a story instead of as an instruction. What what led you to write it as a narrative as opposed to you know your classic um, sort of business principles? Well, I'm, uh, thanks for that question. I love that question, and and the answer is something that I think uh, people resonate with, and that is. People are made for stories. We are hardwired for stories. This is how it used to be, how we were taught, you know, before, right before writing, um, people told stories. And so the stories, the reason that they're so good is that they usually have a larger lesson uh, and they stick. Stories are like Velcro. They stick. We remember stories. And so, whereas just facts and figures, think about, uh, you know, your boring history teacher. Right. Right. You didn't remember uh, those dates. But if somebody told you a really good story and got your imagination active, then you could remember them. And so I chose story for that reason, because there are plenty of books and plenty of good books with good uh, principles uh, and good uh, teachings. But um, in this day and age, with people being so over-committed uh, and over-communicated with, uh, stories felt to me like a really good vehicle. Well, I, I think that I would compliment you on that, on the story part of this as well. And for the listener, the, the ungame. Uh, Ingrid's book is written as a fictional story uh, with the characters acting out, you know, these 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 creative, uh, unconventional uh, business lessons uh, that we're talking about right now. And it's it is it is refreshing from my standpoint. I read a lot of books, both for my, both for the radio show for uh, for my own research and for pleasure. And there's not a lot of books that are written in the story format. And it is sort of, you know, I remember the uh, uh, Jonathan Livingston um, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, which is a book I, I read 
or reread for the first time a couple of weeks ago because I actually forgot if I ever read it. Um, so I actually did read it, and you know that book was just so wildly popular, and it is a, it's, it's a story, and it I think it it's it's very helpful, and I think Ingrid it helps to convey your message. Uh, to put the these principles into a story format. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Ingrid Martin, the author of the book The Ungame, Foreplay to Business as Unusual, a creative approach to some unconventional thinking in the corporate, but also the also the world at large. Uh, and you know, this this notion that much of learning is unlearning, Ingrid, I think resonates um, all over the place because, uh, and one thing that I, I, uh, I compliment you for again is your recognition of the socialization of much, of much of our learning. And you do put an emphasis on the social pressures that we all feel um, when, we, when we work, when we play, um, and when, when, when we adopt, adopt beliefs. Uh, on, on that front, you make a distinction that I'd like you to talk about, and this is the distinction between the hero and the monkey mind, because uh, I thought that that carried uh, a lot of the message. So we've heard about the monkey mind for, for, in other contexts, and I've had other guests talk about the monkey mind. What is the monkey mind? to you the monkey mind is that self-limiting chatter that we all have irrespective of our position in life uh, which uh, becomes largely invisible to us uh, such as um, another way of putting that is you know the doubts and fears that we have somebody might say uh, to a new challenge, they might say to themselves, oh, I couldn't do that. Maybe Ingrid could or Phil could, but surely I couldn't do that. Uh, or um, I'm not good enough to uh, uh, be starting this new project. So you, you heard the self-limitation there, right? Right. You also heard the comparison there. <clears throat> or even something like, uh, I ran into a brick wall. Well, I beg to differ, Phil. You probably didn't run into a brick wall unless you physically ran to a brick wall, but you stopped yourself uh, because you perceived uh, whatever obstacles uh, in your mind, you perceived them like a brick wall. Well, that's, those are all examples of monkey mind uh, that uh, we experience, and it's designed to keep you... Uh, in the status quo to stop you from uh, changing something, to stop you from doing something uh, bigger uh, and producing a, a different result and a better result than you have produced before. So it's there essentially to protect you from harm, perceived harm. Now, monkey mind makes no sense whatsoever, logically. And uh, you've heard it before where people say, well, I know I need to lose weight, or I know I need to do this differently, and then they don't, even at the expense of, um, you know, they might uh, have a heart condition, and they're supposed to lose weight or whatever, and they know that they could die if they don't, and they still don't do it. 
you know, that's like monkey mind protecting them from doing something new, something, something better, something that uh, is uh, beyond the limits that they've set for, uh, for themselves in the past. Yeah. So that's, that's monkey mind. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that that's, that's a really good description. And we all have the monkey mind. We all have some vestiges of it. And I'm not going to go, I'm not going to follow the evolutionary explanation for it to let others do that. Uh, but I do think that there is that sort of uh, choir of doubt uh, of questioning in the back of our mind that, uh, that sort of limits limits a lot of people. And for my and I, I'm throwing this in before you talk about the hero part of this that that to me much of much of life is breaking through the monkey mind. Exactly, yeah. and successful people, whether they have the terms for it or not, right. uh, successful people routinely do that. It's not that they don't have monkey mind; it's just that they know how to outplay it. And I like using the term outplay because I think of uh, life as a game. You know, it's serious, but we uh, we can um, uh, play it like a game, and it isn't uh, quite so heavy for us. And then the idea of outplaying your monkey mind um, feels really good to me, particularly when we're in the midst of monkey mind. We do not think of it as monkey mind. We think of it, it's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have plenty I have plenty of friends who have just sort of given in to the monkey mind. You know, I will never have time to the this. I mean I have one friend who's been very successful in his business, the headhunting world, and he talked about writing a book and I said, Well just sit down and write it. Oh, I don't have time, I can't do it. You know, mm-hmm. and and it's hard. I mean, maybe he should read your book and and to try to like break through some of this. Although I, I think there I think there's still hope. But but uh, the monkey mind is important. Okay, now now we've got this hero, and I see that you um, you picked this up from Joseph Campbell, uh, which we could talk about a little bit. But but how do you contrast the this hero uh, with the monkey mind? I and mean, where did you come up with this? Uh, this idea. The hero is indeed from Joseph Campbell, and I took the hero's journey as a context for the coaching on uh, which the book describes and, and which I do. And so send your friend to coaching, except that he probably has some monkey mind that says, oh, I don't have time for coaching or yes. it won't help and so forth. So, yes. you know, people have to come to it on their own, really. Yeah. The, the hero um, <clears throat> in the coaching is um, the idea that uh, we, you and I, your listeners, everyone, we are bigger than our monkey mind. We are not our monkey mind. We are bigger than our thoughts, than our feelings, than our bodily sensations. There is a part of us that is way beyond that, that that recognizes that we have monkey mind, a big distinction. Most people are being their monkey mind, just like they're being the feather in the wind of life, you know, uh, rather than the wind that uh, moves the feather. So the hero um, is the person being coached. We are all heroes uh, on a hero's journey, and uh, to be human means to have a monkey's mind and a hero's heart. 
And so in the coaching in the book, in the ungame, as well as in the real live coaching, we focus on unfettering, unleashing the hero within uh, who is bigger and beyond all of those doubts and who can keep in mind the extraordinary results they want to produce. In your example of your friend, he wants to write a book. Well... Uh, on his hero's journey, uh, he would uh, uh, be able to keep the focus of that outcome and uh, live his life, and he'd recognize he has enough time. You know, because there's no such thing, Phil, I know this will come as a mega surprise to people, there's no such thing as time management. There yeah. is only commitment management. Yeah, and what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I love that, but why don't you elaborate upon what you mean by commitment man management? Okay, and I'll link it to the hero. Okay. Uh, the hero who uh, is, is always outcome-motivated, um, meaning that uh, the outcome you want to produce, in this case, your example, a book. Uh, so, and then there are all these distractions, aren't there? Life is full of distractions. So, um, but the, 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 the hero is going to not be distracted by the distractions. He's going to recognize, or she is going to recognize them as distractions. And um, <clears throat> so, um, the, the, on the hero's journey in this coaching model, and I get into that uh, somewhat in the end game, there's an assertion that uh, we, you and I, all of us on the planet, we are here uh, to master uh, certain energies. And by energies, uh, in the book, I refer to them as tools that have been given to us to uh, manage our uh, our life, to design, design our life. And so one of them is time. What we have available is 24 hours a day. Everyone's got the same thing. We all have the same amount of time. And what we do when we're not masterful, we're going to cram so much stuff into them uh, so that we're exhausted. Uh, we, we have this notion we should be able to do it all, which, by the way, is monkey mind, and we do not know how to choose. We do not know how to choose. Well, the hero uh, or the person who knows that there is only uh, uh, commitment management is going to act out of those things that are important to him or her. And in coaching, we identify the areas uh, in which you want to uh, have some influence or areas that are important to you, such as being a, uh, an inspiring manager or being a loving parent. You know, that's a kind of a longing of an area that you want to be. Well, you're going to have to demonstrate it in the world, and that means that uh, it, it shows up in the world as a commitment. Maybe it's a commitment to take your kids to a dude ranch or to Hawaii uh, or to play with them um, you know, more than you're doing now. And so then, uh, you, you know, you manage your commitments. You don't let uh, uh, your activities manage you. And in coaching and in the ungame, we go into that. Well, if I could, if I could summarize some, some points here, that the way I'm understanding this is that one of the models of corporate training, and many of us have been through this, is that you go through your technical skill training, such as how to sell a product, 
and everybody goes through this training and their steps on how to sell and then out and then then you pop out of the of the educational process and you follow these steps and lo and behold you know you it, uh you are supposed to be a good salesperson and then you're graded on how much you sell and your performance and goal setting and all that uh what you're saying is that not everybody is suited to be a salesperson not everybody is is can be can be made to uh follow these technical steps and to be successful and also to be uh content and so one of the goals here is to find a person's talent to find what they're passionate about uh or to and to find their commitments and then to encourage them to achieve uh according to that talent set is that is that about That's right certainly a message uh for sure that um you know find what you're passionate about which is uh, in some of those um you know those things that truly drive you or pull you uh and without that um yeah you can train somebody to be a salesman which by the way is actually a combination of technical uh skills and uh, those adaptive skills i was talking about earlier yeah. you know there are some technical aspects to selling uh, sure. But um, to be a good salesman, uh, there are some 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 things, uh, some behavioral things, and some mental attitudes you have to have. And you know, however you think about it, if you think that um, you got to sell these people, you're probably going to sell less than someone who thinks um, not of selling but of buying facilitation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, facilitating yeah. your buying, which means that I'm going to really, really be thinking about what's important to you, right? That's a yeah. different yeah. way of getting at it. So, yeah. no, that's but, good. Uh, the, the, a passionate salesman, uh, yes, they ought to be a salesman, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there, I well, there's, be that. Yeah, well, there's definitely, there's definitely, um, plenty of passionate salespersons and so i want i want to get into um some of some of these methods here be, uh because you you talk about this this choosing and one of the key points from your book i got is how important it is to sort of study a problem um choose observe before you act and you make this this distinction uh, between maybe it's the European, a German uh, model, and the American, where Americans love action. We like to jump into it. And you're and the one message I got from that is that you think that some of the acting is too rash. It's not thought through. And so I'd like you to talk about the importance of this choosing, um, and and sort of the preparatory work that goes into um, this, into an action and why that is important. Okay. Um, so um, let me begin at the end a minute. Um, you mentioned uh, the Americans versus, let's say, uh, the Germans. 
or the uh, the French. Uh, the Americans are action-oriented, and, and I want to emphasize the word oriented. It's an orientation. It's a mindset. And, of course, whatever your mindset is, you're going to energize. And uh, the Germans, on the other hand, oh, uh, so the, the the Americans, back to them a minute, uh, they asked the question, what are we going to do? Yes. <laughs> Which obviously is then quickly jumping into action, right? And oftentimes not uh, thinking it through, as you mentioned. Uh, the Germans are more how-oriented. And uh, so they're not asking what is not that important to them, but how. And so, uh, again, it's a mindset, it's an orientation. And so for the Germans, notice that you have uh, great uh, know-how. You know, you've got uh, Mercedes, BMW. (laughs) You know, you've got uh, Siemens, you've got uh, the scientists. Uh, So there's a lot of how uh, that comes out of that culture. And so it's a cultural mindset. Uh, that we're talking about here. Um, But when you mentioned that I talk about studying uh, a problem before you act and and relating that to choosing, it's not exactly studying a problem. Uh, Even the problem orientation is an interesting one. Uh, Most people focus on problem solving as opposed, uh, which is appropriate many times, but, um, you know, they think about, oh, it's a problem um, that, um, you know, I, I can't, uh, I haven't had a vacation in a year, and they look upon this as a problem to be solved. And uh, when, when you look at it that way, that's a very different orientation than if you're looking at an outcome saying, ah, I uh, have a goal to, uh, to be on a vacation, and then taking step-by-step actions towards that, rather than thinking of that as a problem, you know, simply looking at it as a, as a vision and letting that vision pull you. So <clears throat> when we talk about choosing, it's also uh, related more to a way of being than to um, choosing to reflect before you act uh, or to study something uh, and, and not make rash decisions. It's a choosing, Phil, about um, who we are willing to be. And to be is uh, a different domain than um, <clears throat> what are we going to do. See, if our doing is disconnected from um, a goal that we might have that might be a contribution, whether to ourselves or to the others, then um, the doing is just more of the same of your friend uh, who probably says, oh, I don't have time for this book, you know, I've I got to go ahead and do this head hunting and so forth and so on, comes from a different place. The choosing in the ungame is who you are willing to be. And there are a number of qualities that are actually have high vibrations, energy vibrations, uh, that are um, qualities of contribution. For example, I'm willing to be courageous. 
Just think. I'm going to mention a few qualities and just notice what happens inside your body when you hear these qualities. They're going to be very different than when you hear different qualities. So I'm willing to be courageous, compassionate, uh, kind, gentle, generous, truthful, clear, alert, attentive. All of those, aren't they all contributions if you are across from people who are being those qualities? Mm, yes. Yeah, I see that. I see yeah. that. I, th- I, think, I think that's really good. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm talking with Ingrid Martin, the author of the book The Ungame, Foreplay to Business as Unusual. And we're talking about sort of recasting um, the way we approach performance in not only the corporate setting but also the world at large, how how we can try to um, improve ourselves, our performance by unlearning much of these um, bits of conventional wisdom. And I really like one of the things that I liked about the way you did things is that you have the segues into. Uh, some Einstein sayings, and then you use the word ontology, which is probably not in a lot of business books. Uh, and you also use metaphysics. And I think that this this ontology or this being is really uh, an interesting way to to do it because it seems to me what you're saying, uh, Ingrid, if I'm following you, is that you have to ingrain these qualities in who you are in order to be authentic. Well, and the ingraining, Phil, comes from practice, yes. from conscious choosing, Yeah, you see. And so, um, and yes, you know, this will absolutely lead to uh, uh, extraordinary performance because you are going to perform better, aren't you, when you are willing to be creative, focused, clear. Uh, and then you ask yourself in your day-to-day, okay, how will this show up today? Yes. You know, uh, or you're in a meeting, and it's a tough meeting, and, uh, you know, everybody's hiding the elephant in the room, and you ask yourself, hmm, uh, I chose today to be willing to be truthful. How uh, could I make a contribution here by being truthful? Wow. You know, that's huge, yes, right? Yes. The whole meeting would change yes. if you decided not to go along with the crowd and hide the elephant in the room, but to to speak to it. So this choosing uh, is to take something in metaphysical reality, right? Because it right. exists in your mind. Um, uh, you know, it exists in your, your, your uh, heart and your thoughts where you say, uh, who am I willing to be here? Um, and then you bring it forward in reality. And essentially, what you are doing is you're making a shift um, into what I would like to call a creator role. And a creator, if you're choosing, you are creating simply by your choice uh, and by demonstrating that choice. And wow, it is a, a domain in which people 
um, don't usually uh, go. They don't realize it's available to them, you know, because they say, oh, I'm afraid, yeah. and I'm not, uh, um, you know, I can't say anything. Well, guess what? In in uh, the ontological domain or uh, in the domain of choosing here, you can say, oh, fine, I'm afraid to be truthful here, I'm afraid I might get fired. I'm afraid there might be the backlash. And nevertheless, I am willing to be truthful. Or nevertheless, I am willing to be courageous. And when we realize we actually have that choice and can exercise it, wow. We are talking about power. And, you know, usually we think of power over. That, that's in that old command and control model. Yeah, well, let's let's Thing try to be here is yeah. power to power to choose and also power with other people to create and to co-create. Let's let's try an example of this. Why don't you give us? Why don't you try to give us a, an example of of this of this idea here about the power of, of choosing? And uh, because I think there's, I think that is a. A, a very important message, uh, either from the book or from your own um, experiences, uh, on, on how that plays out. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, so, uh, all right. I'm willing to be courageous. I'll give you an example from my life. We have, uh, my husband and I live in a straw ba uh, bale house. We have thousands of hours in that straw bale house. I did not know how to build a straw bale house when we built it. And uh, I could have easily gone away and said, well, I don't know how and this and that and there are all these obstacles. All the reasons why not, right, can be right. dominating. Right. So I decided, well, I'm willing to be courageous. I'm willing to be creative. I'm willing to be open, receptive. Those are some more qualities that are contributions. And so, um, you know, I just uh, decided I would, I would learn and I would, um, here's another quality, I would find support. You know, I was willing to be supported and, uh, and I'm willing to be uh, empowering. I was willing to empower support of other people. Well, we have uh, been living in this straw bale house for the last uh, uh, 10 years, or maybe it's been 12 years, I guess 12 years now, and love the house more and more, and the house has been uh, visited by many people in Texas. It's been in magazines. It's been on local television. So it was a demonstration of choosing these qualities that then led to certain actions. Because if I was willing to be uh, receptive, for example, that meant that I was willing to talk to, to um, architects and to unconventional builders, right? Right. So it just winds up, you wind up acting totally differently than if you have the mindset as so many have, the you know the builders thought they were in charge. You know, we uh, eventually fired our original um, master builder because they thought they should lead us. Yeah. Well, excuse me, um, I'm the client, 
and I have the vision of the straw bale house, and so, you know, we uh, we did it our way, and have never looked back, and are not sorry. Well, this 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 brings up to me in the corporate setting one of the the most um, popular or one of the most um, prevalent uh, areas of tension, and this is this thing called the CLM, which is career limiting move. <laughs> which is yes. which is speaking up um, when sort of the corporate message is is, is being conveyed, uh, and this it, this to me um, weaves together with your your uh, observations on confrontations, which I think is is related to that. So this happens to so many people, uh, you know. Don't rock the boat. Um, you know, don't disagree with your boss. Don't go against the flow. I mean, how how does that how does that fit together? I mean, what do you tell people um, to, on, on how to deal with that? I mean, I know I know part of the answer here, Egret, and this is I think what what you're saying um, is that the management needs to be inspiring. <laughs> That's part of the problem. But but what do you do? What kind of advice would you give to people who who say, you know, I'm I'm afraid to speak up at meetings because my job is important to me? Well, I think that's a fantastic uh, question, and you're right. Uh, I get this uh, a lot because I I coach uh, I, I coach um, a lot of sometimes CEOs, but but also more the mid-level management and the young people, you know, yeah. and they are particularly uh, asking that question because they don't, uh, what they want to do, they, they want to live, they don't want to exist. And when you're rocking, when you are led by don't rock the boat, um, you know, you're, you're operating out of fear, yeah. a fear-based response. And so that response is never uh, making anybody happy it just makes them uh, feel feel safe for the moment um, <clears throat> so you know um, it's really interesting to me um, I've always uh, lived on the edge so to speak and, and followed uh, if you're not living on the edge you're taking up too much space <laughs> <laughs> that's good <laughs> but you know I, uh, I, I absolutely have a great deal of compassion and understanding for the people who don't want to rock the boat you know you have a family to feed or something like that you know uh, so you don't I what what I've done um, with uh, people in coaching uh, who come with that is I've, I've helped them uh, see that they do have some options of um, you know speaking up where that is a contribution and where they are not um, cutting off somebody at the knees. And that is something that is learned, but it's also something that comes from how you see people. If you see your boss, for example, you know, the one where, where you're having, oh, I can't rock the boat, and, and the boss is always defensive when I give him feedback or something, and um, if you see them as a jerk, well, guess what? You're going to act in such a way 
that the boss shows up for you as a jerk and the boss will know that. So in, in coaching, uh, we, we help people to see what, uh, what is really supportive of other people. So, you know, we may um, role play uh, even uh, speaking to your boss in such a way that it's a contribution. And what I, what I have uh, heard as of late from a young client who uh, works um, in a, for a social profit organization, uh, Greenpeace, he has actually been speaking to his bosses where they have acknowledged him for um, his contributions. And he has given them feedback on what he sees is not working or uh, what he sees would be a better thing. And they've come to appreciate him. So I'm not saying there's a quick answer to that. And it goes right back, though, to who you are choosing to be. If If I'm talking to my boss and I want to uh, you know, make him feel small because I think he's a jerk. Well, I'm going to speak differently to uh, him or her than if I, uh, if I'm saying I have a contribution to make here. I have some feedback to give, and and I'm going to give that feedback and let the boss take it or not, but I'm going to offer it. You see, that's a different way of approaching it. Yeah, well, I'm not one, saying it's yeah, easy, yeah. but um, we can do it. Well, one of the things that it's really a difficult question because one of the messages from your book is that the leadership needs to be inspired. Because yes. if the leadership isn't inspired, and you use the word catalyst, then it's hard for it to occur from the bottom up, and it it really requires a lot of finesse. I mean, I work in a law firm where it's supposed to be a flat, you know, partnerships are supposed to be flat. There really isn't really aren't lines of reporting, but there are informal lines of reporting. There's a firm management, and there's more senior partners, and all this kind of stuff. And still, it's amazing how the, the how uh, discussion full full discussion is sometimes chilled because of the career limiting move and fortunately um, most lawyers aren't afraid to speak up and so there is dissension and, and it is it is brought up but it this is this is a a big big issue I think and it's why uh, your program I think the ungame is is really effective if it could be taught from the top down. Um, well, you so- may have noticed, uh, Phil, that I um, uh, say and that I do this in small organizations. Yes, <clears throat> and it's for the reason that you describe. Is I want the CEO involved now. What's been very interesting and has exceeded my expectations by a mile is I do book studies of my own book. So I'm the author, so obviously I'm going to be the best person to do this, right? Right. Do book studies in corporations, and what has blown my mind, no kidding, is that the book studies, there are 10 of them, and it's a lunch and learn, like a 75-minute lunch and learn, uh, 10 sessions. The book studies have literally transformed the corporate culture. Now, book studies aren't supposed to do that. Yeah. You know, I expect that from uh, long-term coaching, uh, but I don't expect that from a book study. But why? It's because I don't do them unless everybody's involved. Yeah. 
I you see. see. So, so that is true, that, that it, it can be done with the skills that we're talking about in the book. But the uh, example that you give with your uh, law firm uh, is something that I don't have in the book. But that is, uh, uh, you know, you may have heard of this, um, and it's, it's for a, another day, but I'll briefly mention it. And that is that um, <clears throat> uh, not just your law firm, but we all have grown up in a culture uh, where we spend uh, time in something that uh, has come to be known as the drama triangle, which <laughs> is something that was articulated in the 1950s. And there are three roles in the drama triangle, and uh, people play those roles. One is the persecutor, the other is the victim, and the third is the rescuer. <laughs> well, I can tell you, Phil, that 99% um, of the population, uh, uh, this is where we interact. And we have no clue how to get out of this drama triangle. So that even in uh, an organization where you have flat, you know, um, the organization is flat in terms of the power structure, you still have people jockeying for power and right. influence, and they usually do it from, this, uh, uh, from these three roles. Somebody uh, is going to be the persecutor, and then, then somebody feels like the victim, and then there are other people who come to the rescue, <laughs> and you can see why it's called the drama triangle. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it, it goes to the, uh, to the point which I really, uh, I didn't comment on, but I really like that, you know, life is really a game, and... But it, it's also a drama. I mean, I, I like to think sometimes that we are living a story ourselves, and this is a story you tell, this is the role you fill, you fulfill. Um, and, you know, the, the game part of it is more of the, uh, you know, there, there's some competition involved. There's tension. Uh, there's moves you make. And, and what you're teaching, I think, here is sort of how to be better at the game. And one of them is unlearning a lot of the rules that you were told. And number two, don't take it so seriously. Because I, I think that that's something that gets lost a lot. And, and I'm probably, um, you know, that's one of my issues is taking taking things so seriously because you think that your whole life depends upon it. Of course, when you get older, you realize... Um, that your whole life doesn't depend upon uh, your job, um, but but this 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 is really really important. Now, there's two things I want to ask you before we close down here. Um, let's let's do the practical one first, which is what is for somebody that wants to play the ungame. What's the first thing? that they can do as a practical matter, including reading your book. But what's, 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 what's one thing, you know, what's, what's like the first thing that you tell people to do? Well, first of all, I don't tell people to do anything. That's the, That's the kind of coaching. That's good. It's not about telling anybody anything. It is about uncovering their own answers because people have their own answers when it comes to their life. 
you know, they don't have their own answers if they're learning a technical skill, like computer programming, okay? But in terms of their own life, they do have their own answers, and, and so um, it would be great for people who are serious about their own personal and professional gro- uh, growth to go ahead and get involved in coaching. They can call me. They can get, go on my website. They can contact me. Um, yes, I think it's great for them to read the book. I give all my clients the book uh, because it supports them. It's another modality. But um, it's, uh, it's about learning the uh, antidote, if you will, to that drama triangle. Uh, and there is an antidote. And, and uh, when people see it and know it, know it, a whole new world opens up. And that's what you basically get to do in coaching, is a whole new world opens up and there are some distinctions you get to make that you didn't make before. So, you know, would you rather be in the drama triangle uh, or would you like to be in the empowerment triangle where there are three different roles, one of which you and I have already talked about when I said you can be the creator of your life. You know, the creator. That's the opposite of the antidote to the victim that you uh, experience yourself in in the drama triangle. And which do you uh, interest you more, being the victim or the creator? I know your answer. Right. Well, the creator, okay, let's get specific here. The creator is somebody that, uh, that knows, their, knows their talent and commits to achieve uh, their own goal. I mean, how, how would you describe the, the, uh, the role of a creator or the outcome of a creator? Okay, the creator knows how to design uh, a life uh they like and enjoy they know how to design goals worth playing for and and in yes. other words they they know how to create a life uh that feels to them uh like it represents them Yes, and so uh, they get to be uh, they are focused and they focus uh, their inner states through choosing like what we talked about they focus um, and they focus uh, their inner state uh, and uh, which then results in different behaviors so so that's that's what a creator can do and they're not going to say Oh, I gave myself permission to um, relax. Yeah. No, that comes from a victim point of view. They will say, I, um, I have the authority to decide. Yeah. <laughs> you see? So that, those are all um, you know, people who design goals worth playing um, and, a, and, and a life uh, that they enjoy. That's a yeah. uh, creator, and yeah. that's what I really enjoy helping people do. I see. So it's sort of like defining the rules to your own game. And that's, yes. that's 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 your own game. Right. I I like that because mm-hmm. that that is something that, you know, in in my in my uh, double life profession um, as, as a lawyer, there is so much competition and so much one upmanship and bravado. And and so to me, it's been very important to just try to act with integrity and and I and uh, to not take things too personally and to be honest you know there's so that's sort of the way i've dealt with it which is very similar to what you're saying um there's still the stress the tensions and everything but and i haven't mastered it but but uh 
it's so important. I completely, I completely resonate with that, which is, which is defining the rules to your own game. Cause then you could be the hero, um, to yourself. Beautiful. Yeah. That, I think that's, I think that's really good. Now, Okay, um, why don't you have a, just a couple? I mean, this is a big topic, but I, you, at the end of your book, you talk about uh, shifts in the world, which is one of my favorite topics, and you're coming at it from a little different perspective. But why don't you close this discussion, uh, Ingrid, about talking about this this shift that you think is either necessary or happening, and how the ungame fits into that. Wow, that's a, I know, a it, marvelous question. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time, but but let's let's just why don't you just give it justice because I, I think it's an important uh, <clears throat> it's an important topic. Oh yes, um, well the, the the shifts in the in the world, um, huh, it's uh, it's it's huge. Uh, in the in the book, I talk about the the shift for corporations, and in my fictitious corporation, it was a very large corporation. Uh, and we know that corporations have a lot of power, too much power, uh, as a matter of fact. The 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 multinational corporations, uh, you know, have enormous power. So in the book, I talk about the shift from. Uh, going from the single bottom line, which is profits, you know, profits at all costs. And when we really look at the costs of, of uh, profits, then we realize that everything else has suffered. People have suffered. The natural world has suffered. And we are in crisis all around the globe. Uh, so um, I'm talking about the shift where uh, in, in the book, we go to the what we call the triple bottom line, where corporations, uh, you know, the people who run corporations, uh, consider uh, the impact of their decisions not just uh, for the bottom line of profits, but that they're looking at making decisions that do not harm people and that do not harm the environment and that do not harm profits. Now, is that possible? I don't know. You know, probably we have to change a lot of things uh, in this uh, in this world um, that is not related to just the triple bottom line. But I tell you what, Phil, if uh, large corporations were to do that, and there are some that actually are doing that uh, or trying to, if they actually shifted that, that would already make a major, major, major global shift. And um, I'd be thrilled with that. Yeah, I think that that is so important. And I, I having worked in a, in a publicly traded co- um, corporation or two, it really is amazing the attention, um, the the single-minded attention given to stock prices um, to the detriment of virtually everything else, uh, at least in the past. And it is encouraging um, your story, your comments about Walmart, I think, on your website, uh, and more companies getting into the triple bottom line, following maybe the European model, and you know this is all part of, I think a a uh, complete world shift that we need, uh, because it's not only in the corporate world, but it's also in the spiritual scientific world 
Um, that there is, you know, I say this a lot on this show, that there's only one world, and we're not different people um, when we go to work and when, we, when we're when we at home. Uh, we're basically the same people, and it's really it, this mindset, and this is one reason I wanted to have you on, this mindset uh, that we need uh, is really a unified, all-purpose mindset, and I think it does us all good to unlearn some of these conventional assumptions that we've been brought up with, and as you as you say, to unleash the creative powers, the imagination that we all have. Um, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Uh, Ingrid, thank you, and why don't you give a quick um, quick description of your website? Uh, so that people could uh, track you down and to learn more about you? The easiest one is probably just to go to IngridMartin.com, or since we're talking about the book, it can be the book website, which is theungamebook.com, but I think people will find me. And what what we're all about is the power to and with rather than the power over. And in terms of the shift of the world that you're talking about. So I applaud that, and I thank you very much, uh, Phil, for having me. Well, well, thanks a lot. And again, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.